Hello everyone, I'm producer Dave and this is the Ideas from Europe podcast, episode number five. Thanks for downloading our podcast. And in today's episode, Linda will be talking with Paul Vosbeek about energy storage with a flywheel. Paul is the CEO and co-founder of Quintech Energy Storage. Having lived in the USA for many years, Paul brought home with him some of Boeing's patented technology for a spinning flywheel storage solution. Now, I'm not really sure what that is, but Paul does know, so I suggest we get started with today's episode and let him explain it for us. Welcome, Paul, to uh, this uh, Ideas from Europe podcast. Thank you. Uh, to start the uh, the session, uh, so no, people know who you are, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is, uh, where does your interest, uh, your passion for energy transition come from? Yes. Well, thank you, Linda, for having me, of course. Um, my name is Paul Vosbeek. I'm the founder and CEO of Quintech Energy. Um, I'm sure we're going to be able to talk about what the company does. So, so starting off with a little bit of a background about myself. Uh, although I was, I was born and, and raised in the Netherlands, I've always had a keen interest in uh, North America. Um, so as soon as I had the opportunity to study abroad, I actually did and uh, did a study a semester in Toronto, Canada. Came back to Holland to graduate, and then quickly after that started my career, which immediately was focused on international business dealings between uh, the Netherlands and uh, and the United States. In that case, my first gig was actually in what I call environment environmental technologies. Um, so it was waste composting and recycling facilities. Um, so that has been kind of the, the uh, I guess, the, the, the main theme throughout everything I've been doing ever since is, is it, it, it was always international business. There was always a high technology or innovative technology component uh, uh, attached to it. And it had to be either environmental or, or clean energy related. Um, so throughout my career, as I said, I spent a lot of time in North America but always worked from the Netherlands. Um, and eventually in 2006, we made the move to actually live in the United States and live and work from over there. Um, so initially in Washington, D.C. and eventually in San Francisco, California, where I also started my, um, my actually my own clean energy businesses and launched several startups um, failed in some, miserably failed in some, but also successfully succeeded in others. Um, so that's um, that's that that's the connection between uh, between North America and here. Eventually, after uh, after becoming uh, the parents to three healthy kids, my wife and I, we we decided that no matter how much you like uh, North America, there's no place like home. So we decided to uh, to move back at Christmas. 2018, we were back in the Netherlands, and, and we've been we've been here uh, ever since. Um, so, and that's also when I when I was able to uh, to bring back, uh, apart from the kids, um, a a worldwide exclusive license for the world's most advanced energy flywheel energy storage technology, um, which is uh, what we've turned into this company that we're talking about today, Quintech Energy. Very, very interesting life journey. 
to get where you are today. And um, yeah, so maybe then to go a little bit into the, the company, you said Quintech, Quintech Energy already. You mentioned um, groundbreaking uh, flywheel technology. So that already gives us a little bit of a flavor about what the company is about. Yeah. So, so maybe going back a, a little bit to how that started then and yeah, how you I'm came just... with starting that company, that particular technology. Yeah, yeah. No, so but as I said, I was I, I I ventured into various opportunities trying to find you know solutions that are advancing the energy transition, and and one of my uh, one of my failed ventures was actually a small wind turbine technology that I tried to launch. Um, it was originally developed in the Netherlands. Um, I, I was bringing it to the market in the in North America, and for that um, effort, I, I started a collaboration with the Boeing company, um, ultimately with the goal of seeing if we could bring that small wind turbine technology to support um, the U.S. military and humanitarian programs and activities. Um, as I said, it didn't work out in the end, but it, it what what it did result was in a in a very positive collaborating uh, experience between Boeing and us as a as a small clean tech company. So for the Boeing folks, it was uh, it was interesting to work with a with a small group of let's say you know broad minded un, uh, undisciplined uh, crazy entrepreneurs. And for us, it of course, it was interesting to, to, to walk and talk and dance with a giant like Boeing. So it, it really clicked well. And there was a lot of, lot of positive back and forth between their team and our team. Um, and at the moment when I was walking out the door uh, with this failed small wind turbine idea, uh, somebody actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, why do you, are you, would you be interested to take a look at our flywheel technology? Now, frankly, hadn't really heard of a flywheel before. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we all know what flywheels are. They've been around for thousands of years. Uh, the potter's wheel is actually the first successful application of a flywheel, but never had a grasp that it would play a big role or potentially big role in energy. Um, so they, they brought me back into the R&D facility in Seattle and they showed me this big barrel, uh, this big stainless steel barrel, which was their flywheel. And next I know I'm sitting in a room in front of nine PhDs who spent 10 years of their lives uh, developing this technology and uh, looking at me like, you want to bring this to market? And um, so obviously um, I, was, I was heavily out, out, outnumbered and outsmarted by this, uh, by this group of of scientists, um, but it was it was interesting and appealing enough that I said, let me let me find somebody to back me up in terms of of knowledge and, and scientific insights. Um, and so we found a, a local material scientist. Uh, he had an undergraduate from MIT and a, and a PhD from Stanford in material sciences. So he was definitely smart enough and he could talk to the same language as the, the Boeing folks did. So I contracted him. Uh, he flew over to Seattle and conducted a very thorough due diligence on the technology. And, um, and basically, 
And after several weeks, he came back and he said, Paul, this, you know, they, they've really, Boeing has really tackled all the hard things that are there to tackle. And we should build a company around it. And so that's where it started. And, and to kind of take a step back on, on why Boeing started, because Boeing obviously makes airplanes, which also fly, but not flywheels is a different story. So uh, what, what appeared to be the case is that the original purpose for this platform was, uh, for, this, for this flywheel was it was supposed to be deployed in space, in some space program uh, where, where uh, there's equipment on board that needed a lot of power and it needed a device that contained the power efficiently without degrading with very low maintenance and ultra high efficiency. So when Boeing uh, had that requirement, they shopped around trying to find a, a solution that could do it and they couldn't find it. So they, they decided to develop one on their own, uh, which is actually the foundation and the genesis of the current Quintec flywheel. And uh, what's, what's interesting is it's uh, Boeing spent, as I said, 10 years to develop it between Boeing and, and the US government Roughly $20 million been invested into developing a total of four prototypes of this technology. And the test and demo and the test and pilot of the, the fourth model uh, resulted in a, a re-engineering of the fifth generation. And that's actually when, when, when the conversation between us and Boeing started. Um, what was the other thing that was interesting is it was almost like a perfect storm is Right around that time, the Boeing Dreamliner airplane was launched and it had some issues with onboard battery systems. So everyone and everything who knew a little bit about energy and energy storage was basically put onto this new priority and basically fixed fix this Dreamliner issue. So the flywheel project was what they called and discontinued and offered to the market and under a, under a um, under the premise of being non-core IP, so it's Boeing IP, but it's not core to Boeing's business. So then they're trying to find a person or a group uh, that that can that can market the the technology. So and obviously I was we were first in line and and I was not going to be pushed pushed away. So there was obviously other companies that came around and we competed with get the license but um yeah it took it took a while but eventually between you know there was a, we were able to forge a deal between boeing um the netherlands the dutch government and quintech under something called industrial participation or or also called offset um and uh, we were able to secure a worldwide exclusive license uh for a total portfolio of 200 patents uh, owned and uh, still protected by the Boeing company to basically protect this flywheel technology from uh, from from others and from infringement by others, and um, that's what was the basis for Quintech Energy. Um, uh, originally, we had a, we had just a U.S. company um, that we used for the whole negotiation and the process to secure the, the license. But as soon as the license came through, we basically brought that with us and, and brought the, uh, basically offered the 
license and and um, made Quintech Holding in the Netherlands uh, the uh, the IP holder of that of that big IP portfolio. So that was that was where it started. Hmm. So this was around about 2017, 2018, because you said you came back in 2018. Correct. Yeah, the negotiations. Quintech has been more or less than two, three years ago. Yeah, it's 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 we started. I mean, we started the U.S. entity when when we were in this these initial negotiations with Boeing. So that's that's already probably around five years ago, something like that. So 2015, 2016-ish, when we started the, the conversations. Um, and eventually, uh, but it, it that was mainly to have a vehicle to basically, yeah, package the, the conversation and the negotiations in. Um, and it it was when we when we were finally able to secure the license is when we really took off when we really said okay now we're going to invest a lot of time and people and money into getting this uh, getting this off the ground successfully and um, and it's been it's been a great ride so far um, in in 2019 we actually our first little. Little accomplishment was uh, we we won the Enpulse challenge as one of the most promising technologies in the energy transition in the Netherlands. In that same year, we were able to bring together a consortium consisting of uh, the Thales Group, uh, University of Twente, and Saxion uh, Hogeschool, all from the east of the Netherlands, and we were able to secure a one and a half million euro. Grant, Afro grant through uh, through a program called OPE OST, Operational Program OST, and so that was really the foundation from which we started building uh, what we're building now. And the focus has been from the beginning and still is to find out how we can use these flywheels to stabilize and optimize energy applications, energy networks, decentralized uh, energy uh, networks like microgrids, for example. So, so that's actually is the, the scope of the OPEOS project is to develop, deploy, test and, and demonstrate two flywheels, one in a military or it's in a military microgrid environment and in a civilian microgrid environment. Um, so that's, uh, that's, was the landing in the Netherlands, I would say, and it's been, uh, yeah, it's only been going uphill from there. So how do I, I mean, did you also get the prototypes that Boeing did? Could you bring them home with you? I mean, what Our, should I be thinking yes. about in terms of size when you say decentralized uh, microgrid in terms of the um, uh, space footprint that this solution needs? Yeah. What was interesting is Boeing's prototypes were actually that they built were were uh, initially were quite a bit smaller than what we're building now. So we've been doing research into what 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 the energy storage requirements are, and came to the conclusion that we need to build something that's a little bigger, or a lot bigger actually than what what Boeing had been building. So although we were able to get some of the core components and some of the hardware. The main value that we were able to, to to take on from Boeing were obviously is the IP portfolio, which is pretty significant if you think about 200 patents internationally that have to be maintained, and and Boeing is doing that for us. So that's that in itself is a 
tremendous capital uh, capital value. But then also Boeing shared with us or, or transferred to us around, I think off the top of my head, like 1,800 drawings and calculations and reports and, and basically their whole um, engineering, um, how you call it, everything that they did throughout the 10 years of development was all handed over to us together with the help and the continued support of the original PhD team at, at Boeing in Seattle that we can actually still call today if we want to. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll get the meeting on the same day we requested because for these, they were all, I think they were all gentlemen. Um, this was kind of their, their baby. They spent, as I said, 10 years trying to get it off the ground. So for them, they see Quintech as the, the entity that actually going to take their baby to the market. So they're very supportive still. So, so that I think was the main value that, that we got out of Boeing. Um, and then in addition, Boeing also supported us with, um, uh, with, with financial, uh, with funding to get, uh, to get the, the flywheel off the ground. So it's, 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 it's a great partner. It's, uh, it's a good and solid company. Uh, there's, with the amount of people working at Boeing, you know, it's 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 as as many as some small countries, so it's definitely a good a good friend to have. Hmm. So where you mentioned a little bit already, decentralized microgrids. Where where do you position uh, the flywheel technology in terms of when you look at uh, um, very short term electricity store uh, energy storage? Yeah just peak demand or uh, more longer term to seasonal where, yeah. where does it fit in yeah it's 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 a great question it's is when when you look at the energy storage solution spectrum i would say there's there's um there's just a lot of different technologies and solutions available that i believe all have their spot they all have a purpose and and but one is stronger in one thing than the other um, and the trick is probably going to be not to put your bets on one single solution to do everything, but the bet's probably going to be trying to find smart combinations of different technologies to to get uh, to get the maximum result out of a what they call a hybrid energy storage. But in terms of how does a flywheel, or specifically our flywheel, compare to others, let me take you back to to. Uh, uh, the principle of a flywheel is that the energy density in, in the energy contained in a flywheel is linear with the mass. So if you make it twice as heavy, there's twice as much energy in the flywheel. However, if you may let it spin twice as fast, there's four times the energy. So in other words, the energy density um, is... Um, you called it multiplies in with uh, to the square with the rim speed. I know it might be a little technical, but the the the, the foundation is that you don't want a heavy and, and big and bulky flywheel. You want a relatively small flywheel that spins very fast. Mm. So that principle is important because what you're looking for then is is again is is a flywheel that is not necessarily very big. It's contained in a vacuum chamber. 
It's and you spin it as fast as you can with the least amount of resistance. And this is exactly where where Boeing really took a took a I would say a quantum leap forward uh, compared to all the other flywheel technologies out there. Um, they were able to not only put a carbon fiber rotor in a vacuum, magnetically levitated at the top, but also um, actually they they were able instead of a pin bearing at the bottom to stabilize the the rotor, they used something called high temperature superconductive crystals or bearings to which which create a force field and push the rotor up from the bottom as well. So there's no pin bearing, so there's no friction uh, inside of the barrel itself, which as a result of which our flywheel specifically has very high round trip efficiencies, very low standby losses, and you can spin it up and spin it down almost unlimited. And that's that's a big difference. And I'll, I'll give you some numbers. Um, the average flywheels that are out there have a standby loss, which means if you spin it and you just let it spin, it will lose anywhere from 10 to 20% of the energy contained in the flywheel per hour. So after four or five hours, uh, the flywheel is basically all the energy is out. Our flywheel has the standby losses of one tenth of a percent. So it will keep spinning for 40 days. Um, and I think this is important because it means that all the energy, the power that you, you generated with solar or wind or other things, and you put it in the flywheel, it actually will be uh, preserved much more efficiently in this flywheel than in, than in any other flywheel. Um, another thing is the number of cycles. So there's flywheels out there that can run probably 50 to 60,000 cycles throughout their lifetime. Uh, the best batteries are around 10,000 cycles. And our flywheel can run about 350,000 cycles over the lifetime. So, so those are all results from that design that Boeing was able to accomplish that we took over. But it also is very significant for the application. So what we are looking for, and now I'm finally coming around to answer your question. So what we are looking for is, is basically two different situations. One is where the flywheel is, is a standalone solution or industrial, logistical, transportation uh, situations where large electrification is, is introduced and where a lot of uh, high, um, high power peaks are occurring uh, very frequently. So in other words, the most, I guess the most uh, clear example that I can give is, for example, you have these, um, uh, the container terminals in the ports where they basically lift a 40 foot container, they move it to another place and then they drop it again. And this occurs anywhere from 20 to 40 times an hour. You know, when you lift it, it's a big power surge. And when you drop it, it's potentially a big power generation opportunity. So if you were to design one of these container terminals from scratch, and you would design a flywheel uh, system in the, in the center of it, you could run an operation like that almost uh, at a net zero balance. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, 
is is a very clear example. There's other things we're talking. There's other people we're talking to, like um, uh, electric infra, uh, electric charging infrastructure for buses and trucks, um, electric charging infrastructures for for boats that frequently go, so ferry systems, train system operators, talking to industrial groups that are electrifying their manufacturing processes, things like that. So it, it's, uh, and again, that's that, that's one aspect where we're looking at as a flywheel, as a standalone. The other one is where what I mentioned is the, for example, the microgrids, where you see the balancing, the energy balancing um, in a microgrid is, is much tighter than it is on the mainland main, mainland European grid because the main uh, European mainland grid is is like a big battery. People can put energy in it and pull it out and it, it hardly blinks with its eyes. Although recently we had some interesting incidents where we had some near blackouts uh, across Europe. But regardless, you can imagine that if you, instead of having this big inertia of a mainland grid, you have a much smaller uh, network, decentralized network, where you have your, your renewable generation and your energy use concentrated in a smaller network. Uh, it's, it's, much more, uh, it's much more volatile and it's much more susceptible to imbalances and differences and peaks and things like that. And there we see a potential application for a flywheel in combination with another storage technology, where again the flywheel would be, you know, able to to preserve and, and absorb and and level out all the peaks. And you have another technology like a flow battery technology, for example, from a group like Elastor from Arnhem, to really hold on to the energy for a long time. So you have a, a flow battery that is a real long term. Uh, energy storage, and you have a flywheel that's kind of the the shock absorber uh, to to support that uh, to support the battery system, and and the two of them combined could be a real real interesting solution for smaller decentralized power now. Yeah, um, and you already mentioned that uh, the fact that you were able to come back to the Netherlands with this Boeing technology was part of a, a deal, an arrangement between the US and the Netherlands government, uh, where there is like a return system based, I think, on expend military expenditure. Yeah. It's kind of re return, um, return contracts uh, in reward for having spent money in the military uh, in the US. So when you're looking at the roles of different stakeholders in the energy sector, which of course typically traditionally has been very uh, government uh, organized, government regulated for sure, even though there's been a lot of market liberalization. Where do you see the role of government coming in at the moment to help companies such as yourselves? Um, well, there's, It's, you know, obviously with the experience I have from North America there, um, and then for in this case, specifically the, the, the United States Department of Defense is the largest R&D investor in the world. 
Um, obviously, they have budgets, you know, up to a trillion dollars. So when I was around there in D.C., the DOD budget was something like $750 billion annually. So, so the amounts of money that are circling there are obviously very, very large. But there you see a big push from the government to advance technologies. Of course, it depends on the, 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 the political climate you're in. That determines the priorities. So that determines the programs that the money goes to. But regardless, I think there's... There is a role uh, there for at least what you see there is for the government to support and advance uh, innovations in, in energy. I think you have it here, too. And what's interesting, if I compare my experience of 12 and a half years in the United States with, with my two years now back in Holland, is that the pockets of money here are smaller, but they're easier to get. So... So in that respect, I think it's 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 kind of a trade-off between one and the other. Um, I do think um, sustainability, clean energy, you know, uh, the whole climate, uh, uh, the whole climate conversation is much more advanced over here. It's much more a center point of of policy, and therefore you see all these programs coming to fruition where uh, where where innovation but also implementation is is being supported so what i i think one of the roles of the government is try to chip away barriers um for allowing this energy transition to move forward so so stop subsidizing carbon-based uh 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 energy or power solutions and, and oil and gas companies and support, start supporting or continue to support uh, the clean energy spectrum. I think one of the main things that are, is also still on the table is you, you will see um, a move towards more decentralized solutions. So basically consuming the energy very close or, or right near where the energy is is generated. So if you have wind and solar farms and stuff like that, you'll they'll they'll try to create these locally owned and operated power companies. And I think that's a that's a big answer to some of the issues that we're going to be dealing with if we don't do that. Uh, you're going to see more and more congestion on the main on the main grid, and having these smaller decentralized microgrid type of solutions can actually help. Almost you can uh, you can put them in as a, as a flexible asset. Um, so I I would love to see more support for that uh, specifically. I think there's there's obviously there's been a lot of support for wind, and hence you see wind and obviously also solar power. Um, you know the, the the levelized cost of energy has dramatically decreased over time. So. They become more viable than than your conventional oil and gas, and uh, so now we have the clean power generation kind of tackled. Now we have to figure out okay how we're going to integrate that and how we're going to reinvent our you know big power systems in our society to be able to deal with with this clean energy, this clean power that's generated and storage. Um, and and decentralized microgrids or, or decentralized energy systems, I think, are, are definitely a big part of that story. Hmm. 
Okay. So it sounds as if, because uh, we always look at the U.S. as um, having a very small hands-off government and market principles and uh, market should lead the way. But from what you're saying, that's partially true, but then the buying budget in the U.S. is very big and then therefore that drives a lot of the market yeah. development yeah. through yeah. Their, their, the, the, the government's needs, the, the, the requirements that they put into the market for the market to develop solutions and, and, and build stuff for them. Whereas here, perhaps we have a, a, a different approach where we're trying to, where the government tries to stimulate more through um, well, agreements and uh, covenants and then subsidizing or making money available for companies to do R&D and do it that way around. Yeah, it's... it. Yeah, I'm, I still have to. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get a full view of what what the European and and Dutch policies exactly are in comparison to the to the North American. But as I said, I think the main difference is the size of the the money that gets, and uh, so also the size of the contracts. I think is 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 bigger over there, but it's very competitive. So over there, if you're if you're you know if you're trying to go after some R&D grant money, this and that, you, you, you can run into very big competitors, um, all wanting, they've all been following that same dollar that you have your eye on. And it's just a very competitive space to, to get funding. But if you do get funding, it typically is uh, a multitude larger than it is here. Um, so that's, that's definitely one thing. Um, but as I said, I think the way the government is organized over there, it's it's very how you call it. It's 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 almost you would say that government policies are very susceptible to to private sector interests, and private sector is represented uh, and is continuously in communication with the government to basically protect their interests and um, AKA lobbying. And I know we have it here too, but over there and the way that the government is structured and Congress is structured, um, it, it's, it's, you know, they, they definitely turned that into an art. And there's a lot of people making a lot of money getting all these government budgets lined up with the interests of specific, you know, of their clients. So um, I think that's probably a little different here. I think here there's more in terms of clean energy, there's more of a general societal awareness and support almost uh, for, for clean energy programs and, and, and climate policies and things like that um, than it is over there. Because there you still have that force that is always trying to, to counter. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> Maybe um, a bit uh, also about the entrepreneurial side of starting a yeah. starting your own company, regardless of where, in which sector it is. Of course, there are some uh, similarities in uh, in just starting a business. Uh, again, coming back to your years in the U.S., because um, here we we typically look with some jealousy towards the US particularly where you were in San Francisco Silicon yeah. Valley um, 
region, about the entrepreneurial spirit of uh, American entrepreneurs, risk-taking, uh, the investment that goes with it, it's the, the, the risk appetite in investors. Um, so we, we tend to look in that direction quite a lot here for our entrepreneurship, startup, scale-up programs, attitude. You've been on both sides. Uh, how do you how do you compare the two? What, what lessons did you bring back from the US? And how, how does it help you as a yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. I, um, what is the I? In it, I mean, first of all, I think Silicon Valley, San Francisco, is is you know is is very very hyped. Uh, it's uh, by the time I was leaving there, I mean, everything cooled down a little bit everywhere. I think in North America, also in terms of cost of living and stuff like that in San Francisco, but. Around the time that I was leaving, it was, it was, it was ridiculous. It was uh, the 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 city was on, on such on under such high pressure because of all these tech companies that moved in and the amounts of money that they were paying uh, their their employees and uh, they, it it completely changed the dynamic of the city of San Francisco and it you know gentrification with capital G uh, took place. Um, uh, what was it? A one bedroom, a par- average price for a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco was something like $4,000 a month for rent. So it gives you an idea of, of, you know, there was people lining up outside in front of a coffee store for a $15 strawberry jelly sandwich. Right. So it's, it's, and it's, that was what's going on. People were all, you know, there, there's this this whole the whole idea that you have to be trendy, you have to be hip, you have to be this and that to be there. And of course, um, a lot was happening. Uh, a lot of money goes into all these tech companies, but but then tech is synonymous for software. It's preferably an app or software as a service model. And uh, the moment that you walk up to your average Silicon Valley VC with a hardware solution. Uh, specifically, you, you explain to them, hey, it's it's a piece of hardware and we still need several years to develop it and bring it to market. They're looking at you like, okay, well, I'm not interested. So I think the whole hype about Silicon Valley and San Francisco is, is very much geared towards, again, these, these, these tech companies AKA software, software solutions, subscription models. And the one issue that I have with that is there is no app for clean energy. There's no app for clean water. You actually still need real physical solutions to generate clean power, to purify the water and to purify the air that you breathe. So, so uh, tech is, is, is an interesting enabler once everything else is in place, but if nothing else in place, your smartphone with an app is not going to keep you alive. And so that's one of the, I think one of the main things that we all have to realize is you still need, you still need investment and you still need focus and you still need energy towards, to be driven towards, you know, also tackling these other uh, technology challenges that we're facing. Um, So, so that's, 
one aspect of it. Um, but of course, if if you go into San Francisco and there's you know there's five guys in a in a room um, who develop an app that does you know you send a message says yo and the other one says yo back and within within half a year that company is valued at one billion dollars. Yeah, you know, of course everyone's going to jump on that wagon because it's it's in the end it's it's money is very very much a driver um, in that society and uh, I think yeah that's also going to be that's also what makes it tough right to to uh, to make the right choices. So that said, I think I've completely changed uh, uh, while I was there. I think one of the reasons I left the Netherlands originally back in 2006 was because it was the whole idea of, of you have to you have to be at this what do you call it again uh, the minefield uh, you have to be at at par with everybody else and if you if you stand out too much with too big of a too big of an idea or or too big of an ambition uh, people become people get uncomfortable um, and I think in North America or in the U.S. It, no idea is big enough. If if you start a company there and your second sentence isn't, and we're going to change the world, then, you know, you're not ambitious enough. So, so there's, there's definitely a lot of good in that one. And where, what I, at least what I experienced back in the days, I think things have changed or maybe I changed, but, um, uh, but before I left, I always felt like people are trying to kind of, pull you down a little bit, trying to keep your feet on the ground and, and have all these Dutch, I call all the Dutch, these Dutch sayings to just, you know, act normal. You're yeah. crazy as you are and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas in, in, in the United States, if you come up with an idea, everybody's going to circle around you trying to push you up. And there's, and whether that's directly with, with funding or with, with the ideas that they have or, saying, oh, you should talk to my brother and because his friend is such and such and such big shot, right? And they'll make that connection actually for you. So, and that that whole atmosphere of, of you know, positive, you know, enabling each other to save the world or, you know, become very successful, I think is, I like that a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot more uh conductive to to innovation and to growth and to to basically just go out and do stuff so so i think i, I definitely got i got that uh, how you call it got infected <laughs> with, with that uh with with that attitude i think i probably already was like that but being in that natural environment just basically opened it up and, and since now the genie is out i will never be able to become normal again um, I always think, uh, think at I always look at opportunities, and I always see look at the positive, always, and that 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 is a you know it's definitely a, a, a good you know happy happy sta state state of mind to be in. Mm -hmm. So you think that can help you now with the, the company to with your ambition? I think so. Yeah, I think it's. Self-confidence, I always find that the Americans have <laughs> well, talked to them. It was like, yeah, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to fix this. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, I, I think I think that's that my, my fundamental attitude is I we can do this. And of course, I must add that I'm 
the real deep driver for me is is I'm I'm very ideologically driven and passionate about clean energy and climate and you know, protecting this planet. So there's a very deep and and strong drive to try to contribute and try to be a positive change to to the world. So that's what's really driving me. But then combine that with with positive attitude and obviously you know you have to be authentic uh you can't fake it you you have to be who you are and if you are who you are then you end up in the place where you need to be and um and i think that that confidence i definitely have because it's been working and it's actually the more relaxed and the more confident and the more authentic i was able to 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 conduct myself the more success I've been having. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now, the, the stage you're in now, in terms of developing the product that you have, so it's ready to go onto the market, growing your team. What is it you're looking to do in, well, for example, this year, 2021? Mm-hmm. Where do you want to be at the end of this year in terms of team size? Do you have the talent you need? Do you have the money you need? Do you have the partners you need? Yeah, I I, I think I have, I mean, I we have talent, we have money, we have partners, but I think I want to expand all of them. It's, it's my main goal or where we are 2020, I was very focused on uh, securing enough funding to move this company forward for the next several years. And, um, and I've succeeded at that. So the pressure on on funding and cash flow is significantly reduced, uh, which is allows me to now put more time and attention towards the commercialization side of things. So the market opportunities, uh, specific applications, also the killer app, where 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 does this flywheel really fit in the current energy system and in the future energy system? And how are we going to bring it to market? At what price? In what business model? Because you can sell it, you can lease it, you can offer it as a service, you can enhance the flywheel offering with energy trading. And there's all kinds of things. So that's my focus at the moment is to really basically uh, nail the market approach uh, towards very specific market opportunities that are scalable while doing that looking to expand the team for sure um looking to raise more money probably because my dreams are not my dreams i shouldn't say dreams my plans are are increasing in size as i as i do this uh whereas originally i was just planning to be a 50 million euro flywheel company i think now i've I've, I'm beyond that point and, and really want to, I'm really starting to think about um, integrated energy as a service type of model, uh, which of course comes along with additional funding requirements, additional partnerships, uh, also international. And so at the end of 2021, I probably want to have another several million in, in additional funding. I would like to have a team of about 10 people. Uh, I don't think I'm going to need a lot more than that. Uh, I think I can probably build a 50 million euro company with 15 people, but we'll see. We'll see if that if that really works. Um, 
And um, we're going to be launching our system with the Dutch Department of Defense, who's going to be our launching customer. And that's going to happen in August, September. So ideally, I would have two or three more civilian uh, launching customers lined up as well or already in place uh, by the end of 2021. And then, then we're really going to make a big splash in 2022. Hmm. Sounds good. And then the, the manufacturing of this flywheel is something you also want to do in-house. In the, yeah, we, in-house as in, yes, we will. Facility. Yeah, exactly. So we, we are currently, I'm currently outsourcing a lot of, of things that we're doing. So we've outsourced engineering, uh, communication, some some market and, and market research things. Um, um, but as we move forward, um, so we're now building two systems actually uh, in an outsourced manufacturing facility. Uh, we're going to be moving that as we start building the first 10 systems. We're going to be doing that somewhere in the east of the Netherlands. We'll be renting a, a manufacturing space that we will contract with with the contract manufacturing um, folks to help us build these first 10 flywheels. We will bring in our own engineers, electrical mechanical engineers to help guide in the process and also build the knowledge and internalize this knowledge. And then slowly but gradually, you know, it's expanded. So we will always do the, and we will, at least for the first several years, we will do the assembly and if you want to call it that, and the assembly and the testing and the installation and the, uh, and the, um, uh, the client site installation and, and starting up of the system, we will do that under our own control and, and premises uh, until we grow big enough that we need to have that uh, done by somebody else. Mm. Okay. Because it is something that you can build here and then ship to wherever, or at some point, if your customers are going to be, I don't know, in China, would you need to make it there? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's steel, copper, carbon, fiber, and then some, you know, some high-tech core technologies uh, inside of it. So it's something you could theoretically build in different locations, but um, there's there's a, there's a lot of knowledge uh, in involved with building these machines and building them properly. So I think actually the knowledge is in contained and the knowledge in the product is weighs heavier than the steel itself, if you want to call it that. So if we ever would consider moving this around, you would have to move a team and you have to move the the expertise with it. So for now, we're focused on the east of the Netherlands uh, and building out our, our operations as well as our team uh, right here. Okay. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. Now, you were involved in a session on 16 October last year as part of the European Entrepreneurship Summit. Yeah. And um, we are now in the process of thinking about uh, a European roundtable that we want to organize as a follow-up on energy storage. Uh, again, as input to the second uh, entrepreneurship summit to take place again around, around about the time of the Consumer Electronic Summit, the CES unveiled. 
that takes place in October uh, here in the Netherlands. Uh, so I would like to very much invite you also to take part in that. Thank you. And then since this is now going to be European, the last one was very much a Dutch event, even though it was part of the European Entrepreneurship Summit. It was very focused on Dutch industry. How do we create the market in the Netherlands and how do we ensure that Dutch industry has a, a good um, uh, home market to grow to to start and um, from which to grow into an international business. The next one will be more European uh, in nature, international European. So thinking about that, if you were able to choose kind of which stakeholders, which organizations, which companies, and which countries you would like to have around the table there, either physically or online, is to be. Uh, to be awaited to what we're allowed to do by that time. Yeah. Do you have anyone in mind, any countries, any organizations where you think, oh, I'd really love to have them around the table for a discussion or to ask them something or to put something in front of them? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's obvious, there, there's a few. When, and if I can answer that in, in different layers, I would say, I think from a country's perspective, um, what I've come to realize is that there's, although this is Europe, there's a lot of differences. And uh, although they're no longer officially part of Europe, one thing that, that caught my attention several weeks ago was that the electricity price, the cost of electricity in the UK was 18 times higher than it was in, the Europe, in, in Holland at that time. And which is, I just can't understand exactly why or what happened over there. But that would be very interesting to understand. Is so what is it? Is it because it the island? Is it because of congestion? Is it why, what, what was going on there? So that's something that I would like to understand. Everybody that I meet keeps telling me we need, I need to look at Germany much more um, um, because of all types of reasons. So it would be definitely interesting to have some German parties uh, there. Um, I don't know if you heard about this near blackout that we had several weeks ago. And apparently that started with a issue at a, at a, at a, at an, at an electric, electricity grid at a smaller village somewhere in, um, Croatia or somewhere like that. So, so what's interesting is it's, it's, it, it basically, so it apparently is all interconnected uh, in that respect. And um, so it would be interesting to get a number of these other European countries in for sure. Um, for me personally, I'm interested in, in countries where, uh, where the grid is less stable, where there's, there's higher inertia uh, or less inertia. In other words, where the instability is bigger and the volatility is higher because that obviously is a higher pressure case for storage. Um, so that, that'd be interesting. Um, um, I'd love to meet also. So in other words, these countries could be represented by their respective, uh, grid companies. Maybe, maybe that's interesting. There's, 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 I know, for example, like the Portuguese EDP, they're very active, not only in Portugal, but also in parts of Spain, but also in, in Latin America. And they have all types of divisions, investment divisions, so, so venture divisions, distribution companies, and all types of other organizations through which they really are moving this energy transition forward. So it's it's groups like that I would like to see. 
Um, and there's, there's, there's quite a few um, that I think are interesting. Another thing, and I know I'm, I continue to babble on, I hope that's okay, is, is for example, uh, the countries where they have more islands who are more remote, micro-gridded island yeah. situations. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I hope is that something that's, is that useful? Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, it's very helpful. So see if I can find some right partners and organizations. Yeah, and, I, and obviously I'm more than happy to help and look in my network and see, uh, see who we can find. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've more or less run out of time now. So I'd like to thank you very much for your very interesting contribution. It's very interesting to hear from the energy point of view, uh, but also from the startup company point of view. Yeah. To see your lessons learned or what your plans are, what your ambitions are. And hopefully then we'll, we'll meet each other somewhere halfway through the year and then again towards the end of the year and see uh, which plans, which part of your plans uh, have uh, have been. And materialized. Yeah, have I know. Been, yeah, or even exceeded yeah. the uh, yeah. plans yeah. you had for this year, hopefully. Exactly. No, I'd so, so um, I do think, you know, which I think I mentioned this to you before, Linda, is when I believe that success in business comes when you have the right solution that really offers a, a, a value to, to a situation. You present it to the market in a way that the market can understand and ad adapt it. And then thirdly, you do it at the right moment. And I think definitely for storage, but also specifically for our flywheel, these three stars are aligning. And I can see I can see this becoming very successful. And I'm you know I'm I'm open to collaborate and partner with with everybody else, including all these other storage technologies, because I believe in the end it's it's only through partnering that we can tackle this energy transition in the right way. And and I also want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak, but also to be part of, of you know the formation of your plans and programs and anything I can do to help. I'm here and available. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Linda, and thanks very much to Paul for that fascinating insight into flywheels. Now, next week, we're going to take a bit of a break from the long-form interviews to bring you some highlights from our Ideas from Europe roundtable discussions that took place in the autumn of 2020. Remember, way back when we all thought Corona would be over by Christmas? Well, we had a series of four fascinating events with a wide range of speakers covering four major thematic areas of the focus in Ideas from Europe, such as space wisdom for smart cities, energy storage, personalized medicine and people flows. So over the coming weeks, I'll be putting together a highlight reel for those of you who couldn't join us and to give you a taster of what's going to come up later on in this year. And for those of you who are maybe struggling to keep up with these long podcasts, give you an opportunity to catch up. I'll be releasing those new episodes every Thursday. So don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app. And with that, I'd like to say thanks for listening and I'll hopefully see you all again next week. <laughs>